Last week, uh, we considered a higher use of liberty. We're concentrating on 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. The central thought of the passage is that the Apostle Paul uh, used his liberty in Christ to live his life according to his, not, not according to his own personal preferences and desires, but instead he used his liberty for a higher purpose, and that is to, he used it to enhance uh, his ability to persuade unbelievers to come to faith in Christ. He, he used his liberty to give himself every possible edge in winning unbelievers to faith in Christ. So, just to review, we're not going to go over it all again, but, but just say, in the matter of eating meat that came from an animal that may have been sacrificed to an idol, here's what Paul did. This is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9. He was, a, he was a meat eater when he was among meat eaters and was trying to win meat eaters to come to Christ. When he, w- he was a meat abstainer, when he was among meat abstainers, in order not to put any kind of obstacle between himself and his intended audience, you know, his target audience, he, he did not set himself apart uh, purposefully or unnecessarily from the people he was trying to reach. In fact, he did the opposite. He went out of his way and used his liberty in Christ to do it. He went out of his way to make himself as much as possible like the people he w- had been sent to reach with the gospel. Um, now, some Christians, and I say that, and if you think about it, you, you know this is true, some Christians have a very different idea than the Apostle Paul in this matter. In fact, they, they have the opposite idea. that Christian, And they make a point that Christians should be different. Christians should be different in every way. And they're happy that when, where a Christian is different, they're happy. No matter what the, just about no matter what the difference is, it's, it's a good thing where there should be a, there should be a distinctively Christian way of dressing. There should be a distinctively Christian way of speaking. There should be a distinctively Christian way of whatever. You know, how you wear your hair and you know, everything. There should be a distinctively Christian way to, to do these things. And it's kind of to take an extreme example, just so you can see that it's true. The, the, the Amish or uh, uh, Mennonite communities... Different, right? Distinctively Christian in in all all kinds of ways. You know, you can literally see them coming a mile off, right? You can literally see them coming from a mile away, in the horse-drawn carriages and the you know the black clothing, the plain clothing, even down to the buttons. You know that that shouldn't you know Christians shouldn't have fancy buttons. You know, so that. There's people that have a completely different idea. And you don't have to get that extreme to, to have it where that's the dynamic and where, and where you really not quite see them coming a mile off, but, uh, but you can see them coming pretty far off. A few years ago, I went to the graveside funeral of a friend, you know, because as Yogi Berra said, if you don't go to theirs, they won't come to yours. So I went to a funeral. And, it, and this funeral is all graveside. Everything was graveside. 
I was not the officiant, okay? I've conducted lots of funerals, but I was not the officiant that day. I was not carrying my Bible. I didn't have the little black book that you see, you know, the clergyman carry something like at funerals or weddings. I didn't have the little black book. I just went to the funeral. But an employee of the funeral home walked straight up to me and said, You the preacher? And, and I said, No, but in my heart I said, Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Does it show that bad? Is it, you know, did I have a scarlet P on my, you know, uh, embroidered on my coat or something? This pastor or preacher. And, and there are Christians who think, well, that's great. That's as it should be. That's just as it should be. We should be distinctively different in all kinds of ways from those who are in the world. But you know, they think that's great. But you know what? That's not great if we're taking our example from the Apostle Paul, from this passage we read last week. I'm going to read it again. Paul says, For though I am free, this is 1 Corinthians uh, 9.19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, in other words, like a Gentile, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those. Oh, I'm sorry. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law as a Jew. I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, here's like the Gentiles. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them, that I may share with them in its blessings. And when you're, when you're studying the Bible for yourself, one of the things to do is to look for repeated words and phrases. You know, look, look for repetitions. It, it's a key, to, and a lot of times it's a key to what a passage is getting at. It's, a, it's one of the things you want to do. Did you catch anything in those verses, those five verses? Did you catch anything in the way of repeated phrases? Uh, I, I wondered if you would catch it last week. I didn't say a word about it last week when we were kind of taking a different um, emphasis on the, on the passage. But I wondered if you would catch it. And it's, these four words appear again and again. That I might win, right? That I might win. For though I'm free from all, I have made my servant to all, that I might win more of them. Verse 20, to the Jews that became as Jews, in order to win Jews, a little different. Verse, uh, the, the next verse, verse 20, to the Jews, uh, to the next part of the verse, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win, it says. Verse 21, that I might win. Verse 22, that I might win. 
And the, la the last verse, the last part of verse 22, that I might, by, that by all means I might save some. It's, you know, I thought you would pick up on it because last week, because it's, for one thing, it's just so clear. But for another thing, it's, it runs, those words and those phrases, they run so counter to our Christian culture. In other words, what I mean is that we would never talk that way. We don't talk that way. That I, we, we don't think of ourselves as winning people to faith in Christ. And in that last verse there, we definitely don't think our, of ourselves as saving people from sin and death. That I might save some. That I might say that you might save some. We don't we don't talk that way. We don't think that way. And it, it seems so presumptuous, right? The thing that I might save somebody from sin and death is so presumptuous. It's so theologically incorrect. I, I just don't hear people say, and I don't think we would say. I like Paul says. I'm using my liberty in Christ so that I might save more people from the power of sin and death. That I might save. And if, we, if we're used to Paul saying that, if we're used to the Apostle Paul saying that here, we've kind of become accustomed to reading this passage perhaps. It still, if it, we heard anyone else say it that, we, we might be, we might correct them. I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. I didn't die for anyone's sins. Jesus saves, not me. I don't have any power to save. I, you know, I can't win people. I can't save people. And, you know, we, we've come, and, and really, we, we come to that quite honestly. You know, this, we, we understand and we're focused in on this idea and, and I don't, this is certainly not a wrong idea, it's absolutely true that it takes a miracle of God's grace for someone to come to faith in Christ. It really does. It might not seem like that when you're, when you're experiencing it yourself, when you're coming to faith in Christ, but it really does. If you know, if you knew the Bible better than you did, you would know, someone would know that it that the Bible teaches it takes a miracle of God's grace for someone to come to faith in Christ. Same the same apostle who wrote First Corinthians nine wrote Second Corinthians four. Here's what it says, verse three: Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, who's that? Satan. Has blinded the minds of the, unbelie of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, <coughs> excuse me, has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So according to that passage, why don't unbelievers see, as Jesus says, with eyes to see? Why don't they see with eyes to see? Why uh, don't those who don't believe, why don't they recognize the glory of God in the gospel? Why, why don't they recognize this, uh, the, the, the good news? Why don't they see it? Why aren't they bowled over by the message of the gospel the way you are? Paul says it's because they have been blinded. They can't see it. They can't. So it isn't that they're merely obstinate. They've been blinded. from A spiritual force outside themselves is preventing them from seeing the truth of the gospel, the goodness of the gospel. The glory of God in the gospel. It isn't that they're dim-witted, right? It isn't that they're dumb. They've been blinded to it. They can't. And, it's a, and what does it take? In the passage, what does it take to overcome that blindness? Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts. Who has to turn on the light? God turns on the light. God turns on the light, as He has in us, allowing us to, to see. So is it, is it possible, so here's how we reason, is it possible to persuade a blind person not to be blind, but to be seeing instead? I mean, how would you do it? How would you persuade a blind person not to be blind? Do you tell them the top ten benefits of seeing you know, do you, you know, what do you, you, you know, what do you, what do you do? It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's not a matter of the will, is it? It's not a matter of the will. Physically blind people, they, well, I, I suppose they all want to see. It's not the problem they want to. They need something outside themselves. And if you're spiritually blind, you need a miracle of God's grace. You know, I, I think when... When Paul wrote that, that Second Corinthians 4 about the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, you know, how could he not be thinking of his early experience? How could he not be thinking of his, coming, his own coming to Christ? When they, you know, this, he's blinded on the road to, this, to Damascus. He's blinded. He can't see. He's three days without sight until this man Ananias is sent to help him to pray for him that he regain his sight and God causes something like scales to fall from his eyes and he regains his sight. He had to be thinking about that when he wrote this first, 2 Corinthians 4. Only God can do that. Only Jesus makes the blind to see. You know, did you know that of all the miracles in the Bible, only Jesus, only Jesus, as far as I know, I think this is true, only Jesus causes the blind to see. No one else does that. There are others who even raise people from the dead, you know, but, but, but only Jesus causes the blind to see. So if salvation requires the lifting of spiritual blindness, you can see why you and I might... Sh- Shy away from saying 
I do this or I do that so that I might save more people. Of course, you know it's even worse than that. If the problem is spiritual blindness, there's an even, well, the imagery similar, but it's, it seems like an even worse problem. We're not only spiritually blind before Christ, apart from Christ, we're also spiritually dead. Same apostle, Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Well, that's even more dramatic. Because it isn't just that lost man is spiritually blind, he's also spiritually dead. So if blindness is beyond the reach of the will, how much more the problem of spiritual deadness? In other words, well, think of it this way. You persuade the blind to not be blind anymore, to be seeing. I'll persuade the dead not to be dead anymore. Which one of us has the harder job? <laughs> They're both impossible, aren't they? You can't, you know, what would you do to persuade the dead not to be dead anymore? Top ten benefits of being alive? They can't, they can't respond. That's the whole point of being dead. They, they can't respond. And, and in the Ephesians 2 passage, it's the same. What is required to fix the problem of spiritual deadness? But God, being rich in mercy, right, made us alive. In the same way, God, it takes God to cry out, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man has to obey. So, we see that salvation really is a miracle of God's grace. If you, if you, sitting here, if you personally have come to see your need for a, this, a Savior, why is that? It's because God has opened the eyes of your heart to see that. If, if the gospel does not sound like foolishness to you, but rather it sounds like the power of God for salvation, why is that? It's because a miracle of God's grace has taken place in you so that you can see that, you can embrace it, you can, you've been made alive to the gospel, to the truth. If, you, if your heart thrills at the gospel, if the good news is the best news you've ever heard or think you ever could hear, why is that? You would not have come to that if God has not, had not performed this miracle of God's grace in you. Those he predestined, it's Romans 8, 
Those he predestined, he also called. Those he made called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's God from beginning to end. And so you can see why we might recoil at the suggestion that one person has any, what, what should we say, any uh, necessary role in the salvation of someone else. And yet here it is. Here's the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, saying things like, I use my liberty in Christ in such a way that I might save more people from sin and death. And it isn't just 1 Corinthians 9. Here's 1 Corinthians 7, 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? He's speaking to believing wives of unbelieving husbands. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So there Paul is saying, you, you can't assume somebody's going to be saved just because you set out to save them, but still, look at the language. It's the same, isn't it? Look at the language. The possibility is there. He's willing to speak of it this way, that a wife, a believing wife, might save her husband. And an unbelieving husband might save, or a believing husband might save his unbelieving wife. And, and that's just how he puts it. Romans 11, verse 13 and 14. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, Paul says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Subject of the sentence is I. The meaning is, I, the Apostle Paul, he says, I hope to make my, Jew, my fellow Jewish brothers jealous by spreading the gospel among the Gentiles that I might save some of the Jews. That I might save them. Jude 23 commands us, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others. There's a command to you and to me. Save others. Save some people by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We, and we just don't talk like that. You, you just don't hear Christians say things like, and let me put it in a way that we might talk, even though we don't. There's a guy at work I'm really trying to save. Please pray for my witness there, because there's a guy at work I'm really trying to save. Say, or someone might say, I've been trying to save my brother-in-law for years. Or we've, we've got a neighbor... We're, we've got a neighbor we're really trying to save. He, he seems so close to the kingdom. 
we're really trying to save him. And we, we cringe a little bit to hear it. You know, we cringe a little bit to, um, to hear it. It sounds like we're encroaching on God's turf, you know, like we're trying to take credit for something that only God can do. But here's the point. Apparently, the New Testament authors did not see any inherent contradiction between the sovereignty of God in the salvation of men and the necessity of human witness in the salvation of those same men, those same people, and the responsibility of witness to share the good news persuasively, effectively. And I think, as a result... Paul, the Apostle Paul, who lets himself talk this way, felt more acutely than we do the necessity and the efficacy of believers to share the gospel. That we have to, or people won't be saved. To, to speak the good news persuasively, to, to win people to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, that I might win more. More than what? I don't think it's more than other people, like it's some sort of competition. But I think it is more than what would be saved if he hadn't have done that. I use my liberty to win more than would be saved if I didn't use my liberty that way. And, and how can we, and then he says, I become all things to all people that I might save some. Well, some as opposed to what? Some as opposed to none. So he holds out the possibility, you know, I do it this way that I might save some. If I didn't, I might not save any. And how do we escape the corollary? I don't think we can that Paul entertains the possibility that if he did not become all things to all people, if he didn't use his liberty that way, he might not save any. And how do we escape the corollary? I don't think we can. That the choices we make in the Christian life either enhance or diminish our impact for the gospel. We can live in such a way that we might save more or we can live in such a way that we might save less or win less. We can live in such a way that we might save some or we can live in such a way that we don't save any. So it isn't just that we don't talk like Paul talks or we don't let ourselves talk like Paul talks. It's that we don't, we don't talk like Paul talks because we don't think how Paul thinks. We think with kind of a diminished sense of, of, our, uh, of how important it is that we witness. And we have a diminished sense of the power of the gospel shared. And, that, and it sets us up, it sets us up 
Not to win more, not to win more, but to win fewer. And it sets us up not to win some, but to win none. And what a terrible thought, really, that fewer people than might have been saved are saved because my role in salvation my role in the salvation of others is diminished in my own eyes. Or the thought that, because the thought that I, yeah, that, that nothing much happens, I don't win very many, and I don't, maybe I don't win any, maybe I don't save any, because the thought that I could save some, anyone, stretches my theology to the breaking point. There could be other reasons. They're equally horrifying that I don't love the lost as God loves the lost or I've never grasped this higher purpose of Christian liberty. I just use it to serve my preferences. I'd rather, I'd rather this be kind of the, the battle cry. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Well, how, how does... Well, yeah, but... How does the sovereignty of God in the salvation of men, chosen from before the, before the foundation of the world, set apart from our mother's womb, you know, how, how does the sovereignty of God and salvation go together with uh, how shall they be saved if nobody tells them? How does that go together? Well, I've, I've got a master's degree in theology, Dallas Seminary, and I'll tell you what, when you tell me, we'll both know how those go together. But I just know they do. I know they do. The Lord said to the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, and he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if, he's taken, if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one, any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood, the God says, I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, he's talking to Ezekiel, God talking to Ezekiel, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. 
<laughs> but if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And I think the Apostle Paul was thinking about this passage, Ezekiel 30, 33, is it? Ezekiel is Israel's watchman. When he refocused his ministry on the Gentiles, turning away from the Jews, who not only didn't believe, but rejected him every way, opposed him every turn, even going so far as to plot to kill him. Because listen to what Paul says, Acts 18. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, this is quoting Ezekiel, I think, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's thinking of himself in that Ezekiel role, in that watchman role, and he's saying, listen, if you're not going to accept this miraculously gracious, merciful offer of salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ, it isn't going to be because of I was silent. It isn't going to be because, be because I didn't try to persuade you from your Scriptures that Christ, that the Jesus is the Messiah, your promised Messiah. And if you're not going to be saved, I'm going to make sure it isn't on my account. And you, you know what? You don't hear many Christians talk like that either. You really don't. Because, once again, we're not wired to think that way. Why didn't God save them? It's because they weren't chosen from before the foundation of the world. God and His sovereign grace didn't save them. You remember, it's not my notes, but you remember uh, William Carey. This, this is, what I'm talking about is, a, is a shades of what was the attitude was prevalent when uh, William Carey went to, first went to India. He's, he's, he's talking about taking the gospel to India where they don't know the gospel. They don't have the gospel. And someone said to him very famously, young man, if God wants to save the Indian people, he can do it without the likes of you or me. It is, but, but what's the Bible really say? No, the witness is required. How are they going to believe if they don't hear? How are they going to hear without a preacher? But we, we don't, it's, it's terrifying to us really that, the, that we could be complicit in someone not being saved because we were silent. But Paul says, that's a possibility and I'm not going to let it happen to me. When I, when I became, this reminds me of a conversation I had not long after I became a believer. 1974, I... I was seeking uh, opportunities to share the gospel with everybody, including my best friend in my, in, during my high school years. And he, he caught me trying to witness to him. He, he caught me. Uh, you, you know how you do. You're trying to get the conversation, you know, to drop a little hint here and try to get the conversation over to spiritual things or to, you know, to get on topic. And he, uh, and, and he, he caught me and he recognized me. He said, you're trying to witness to me. 
And he was offended. And the reason he was offended, because I, because I apparently thought he was not a Christian. You don't think I'm a Christian. He was upset. He was offended. And he was, he, he was what I would later come to think of as like a fire insurance Christian, right? He, he is someone who way back when in his ancient history, he, uh, he did something, you know. He, he, uh, he uh, raised his hand or he went forward in church service or he got baptized or he jumped whatever hoop they had for him to jump through. But it was ancient history, but it all got settled, all that Jesus stuff, all that salvation stuff. But it wasn't. But in his manner of life, you know, we were best friends in high school. Let's say he was a Christian, but not so as you could tell. And I was not a Christian, so as you could tell. Well, you know, this is this completely this this witnessing. You know, you know, sometimes just goes completely wrong, right? He, I'm trying to witness to him, and he ended up mad at me because I thought he wasn't a Christian. Well, well, for good or for ill, I got offended back. And what I got mad about was right what we're talking about. I said, I said to him, this really happened. This sounds like it didn't happen. It sounds apocryphal, but it really happened just about this, pretty much this way. I think I remember it very well. He said, well, you don't think I'm a Christian. He's mad. You don't think I'm a Christian. And I, and I said, well, what do you, you mean all this time you've been a Christian? Why didn't you say anything to me? Why didn't you tell me? When I think about all this stuff, when I think about all this stuff we did, and I don't even want to tell you. I don't want to tell you. I don't want to tell you. Dangerous stuff. Dangerous stuff. I, I mean, going. I don't even want to tell you how fast going down Charles Seavers Boulevard next to the river there where you're going to go home in a little while, racing down the, next to the river in a... In a, a like a, in, a, in a jalopy that was, we're going so fast this thing is shaking apart like it's the Apollo on re-entry. You know, it's like, it's, I mean, what if we'd have blown a tire? And we're, you know, we're doing all this crazy, crazy, dangerous things and you're saved, I'm lost. We got different, you know, you had, I had a lot more stake than you did. Why didn't you tell me? And, and, and it got rather uncomfortable for him. It really did. I don't want anybody to ever say to me, and this is an example of thinking like Paul thinks, that we're not used to thinking this way. I don't want anyone to ever, I don't want anybody to even want to say to me someday, why didn't you say anything to me? Or, how long were we neighbors? Or, how many years did we work together side by side? Or, I thought we were friends, right? And there wasn't any place to maybe mention that apart from Christ, I'm hopelessly lost and under God's righteous wrath.
Second Kings tells a story. I, I, you know, it's the kind of thing that not many people remember it. It's not a well-known. It's not Daniel in the uh, lion's den, and it's not the three boys in the fire. It's not, you know, it's not Noah's Ark. It's not one of those stories we think of in time and again. But I wonder if you remember this, Second Kings chapter seven, six and seven, uh, from the time of the prophet Elisha. Samaria is the the capital of the northern kingdom. This is after the kingdom split. You know, and there's a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, and it's under a t- siege by Syria. And it's just there's a terrible, terrible famine in the land. The biblical description of the famine is just horrific. It's just awful cannibalism, and and just it's just ghastly. If you if you read it, it's just ghastly. But I'm I'm kind of skipping ahead. So the, the city's under siege and there's terrific famine in the land. This this is from 2 Kings 7. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now Come. Let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight. Nothing to lose, right? So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord made the army, had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Here's the kicker. Verse 9. They said to one another, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. Here's the, well, just the comparison. We are like lepers who were under the sentence of death, but by God's grace and God's mercy have found unimaginable riches in Christ. And we can immerse ourselves in church life We can isolate ourselves in Christian subculture, going from tent to tent, sating ourselves with the food, pillaging the riches for ourselves. But if we do it that way, we are not doing right. Because this is a day of good news. And we can't remain silent. We really can't. Remain silent. If we take 
the scripture at face value if we don't tell some won't be saved i don't know how that works i don't know why it's that way but it's so so we have to go and we have to tell Someone went and someone told us. You know, I passed time. I, I, I'm, I'm done with my notes, but I, I kind of don't want to leave you here like this. <coughs> so let me leave it just a, a very fast. A th- four positive things. Because I don't want to just leave you, oh, yeah, I'm a dog. I'm a horrible. I don't tell anybody. <laughs> Ask. So here, just real quick. Ask God to show you the mission field in which he's already placed you. Because it's very likely you're already there. You, you are the witness, very likely, in some setting, at work, at school. You're it. There, there might not be anyone else. You're the witness. Ask God to show you what that is. Secondly, ask God to show you how you might expand that mission field, because it is possible for you to have lived, and me too, me especially, being a pastor, I've kind of kind of worked at it. But uh, it is possible for us to have become so isolated, we, we don't know what our mission field is. What is it, the person at the, the, the checker I speak to sometimes at the grocery store, I don't know her name, but you know what I mean? It could be weak right? that we're so isolated. Ask God how we might expand it. It's a perfectly legitimate thing for you to Decide to do something, uh, not because you enjoy it or don't enjoy it, because there's going to be uh, people there you can meet that don't know Christ. Paul would do it. Paul would do it. Stretch it somehow. Invite someone to your house for dinner. They might have a heart attack. You didn't notice Paul, 1 Corinthians 10? 1 Corinthians 10, is it? If one of the unbelievers invites you, Right? Can you imagine being so engaged that an unbeliever might invite you to dinner? Wow. Uh, third, ask God for opportunities to share the gospel and ask him, for bold, ask him for wisdom to see it and boldness boldness to, uh, to take it. A- ask God. I've always found this to work. Ask God to give you opportunities. When you get up in the morning, God, bring someone in front of me. Put someone in front of me today that needs to hear, is ready to hear. Let me see. and there and someone will come up to you and I mean really things like this will happen. Where do you where do you where do you go to church? Yeah, I, I've told you about one of my stories. I won't tell you the stories, but you know I started praying this prayer again after not having prayed it. Lord, put someone in front of me. And you know what the uh, you remember what the the thing was to me came to me. A girl said a girl with leukemia said to me, "What do you all believe at that seminary you go to?" And like I said before, me being a very sharp person, recognize that as an opportunity. Here's the last thing. Pray for your lost like everything depends on God because it does. Persuade like everything depends on you because somehow it does. Lord, grant that we would 
uh, embrace a thoroughly biblical outlook so that we would both recognize fully your sovereign grace in the salvation of men and that we would feel the weight of our responsibility as Christ's witnesses, our, our necessity as Christ's witnesses. Armed with the gospel of grace, grant your witnesses in this place opportunity this week to share the gospel. In our conversations, let the subject turn to matters eternal. Uh, let us see opportunities and give us boldness to take them. Open our eyes to the mission fields in which you've placed us, in our workplaces, neighborhoods, at school, and our families. And may we do right, not remaining silent, that we might win more, that we might save some. Increase faith in every believing heart. Let the beginnings of saving faith spring up in any who are here today, but outside of Christ. But they're open to receiving the indescribable gift of eternal life in Him. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.